Hi, welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today, we will be talking with Bill Miller, the CEO of Breedlove Foods. Bill, thanks so much for coming on today. It's an honor to be here. What's your connection to Lubbock? Well, it goes back a ways, as they say. I grew up in Bonham, which is uh, northeast of Dallas, little town. Came out here sight unseen in the 70s. Graduated from tech. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think I had about $2,000 in student debt, so I got a job. I had an uncle here who was a jeweler, Bacon Jones jeweler, and he gave me a job. I was okay at that. My fingers weren't. Made my wife's wedding band of mine. Got a job with a company called Time DC, which built the building where the Science Spectrum is now. It was their worldwide headquarters. They were about the third largest transportation company in America at the time. They were very kind to me, and they gave me a lot of opportunities. They said, well, okay, we need you to go to either North Bergen, New Jersey, or Dearborn, Michigan, and run a terminal. And my wife's from Midland, and I'm from Bonham, and we both were pretty sure we did not want to do that. Many people that I met out there, they all said, it's pretty easy to come from the East Coast to Lubbock, but to go from Lubbock to the East Coast, it's a little bit different a cut of cloth. And I had traveled all over the United States. I'd never traveled anywhere before I worked with them. And this was in the era before Waze, MapQuest, and cell phones. This is where you got a map that folded out. You landed at Newark Airport, and I sort of wonder how I did it now. Anyway, didn't want to go there and had an idea for a business. My boss was C. Wayne Smith. He was their CFO, and he reported to a guy named Charles Becker. And I told him about my idea for business, and they said, okay, you got a customer. And 10 years later, I had about 60 employees. We arbitrated disputes, got involved in collections to a degree with big transportation companies and their better customers. Dun & Bradstreet in New Jersey was interested in me. I could see deregulation of transportation coming, so I sold it to them. I worked for them for seven years. It was a great learning experience working for a Fortune 500 company and seeing the difference between being a small business guy and big corporate stuff. What's your earnings forecast by the day, week, month, quarter? That's pretty relentless. I had been on the board of Lubbock National Bank for about 13 years. I'm somewhat of a turnaround guy. So a bank west of Lubbock. I was here as CEO, the holding company for that. Did that about seven years. Took a little time off. I thought healthcare was the rainbow towards the pot of gold. So I went to work as president of a group purchasing organization, a group based here at the time called the Mid Group. Healthcare reimbursement, very, very difficult. It's primarily Medicare, Medicaid. If they find an area of profitability, then they want to cut the reimbursement. I got out of that, consulted for a while, and then I was asked to be the executive director of the Reese Technology Center. That and Breedlove Foods are probably the two most unique things I've ever done. Reese is a unique asset for West Texas. I did that for about seven years. I got a great person out there now running it, Vet Musa. It's sort of like converting what some might see as an old building into a lab. So you got to be a person of vision and also a little bit of persistence and creativity. It's political. It's a political subdivision. Through some prior political contacts, particularly John Cornyn, I was able to get us a $2 million plus grant to put commercial entrances out there. I've been in politics some, two-term school board, two-term school board president. President Bush appointed me to the first TEA accountability standards, which was really interesting. I'm a fan of public schools. 
I think we're still blessed to have a good school district in Lubbock. One of the things I did through the chamber, we tried to come up with a shared services co-op. And there's a reason they call them independent school districts. But we made progress there. I like politics. I've been fortunate to meet three or four presidents. Lubbock has been great to us. It's a great place to have a business, particularly a service business. People here are still great people. I've followed, you might say, a non-traditional path. All along the way, I have a wonderful wife named Melinda, who's from Midland. She's a college professor at South Plains College, about to celebrate 50 years of marriage. Got three adult kids. They're scattered hither and yon. We've had several opportunities to move. You know, when people came to Lubbock, they were tough people. I'm fortunate to be on the board of the Ranching and Heritage Center. Boy, you just pick up the history and these people living in dugouts through dust storms like we've had. How in the world do those people survive out here? But Wyman Manzer, who's state photographer and our friends, he calls the area out around Benjamin and Seymour the Big Empty. To me, it's beautiful out there. In the Lubbock community, you're considered someone who's an executive's executive. At what point in your career did you realize you had become somebody sought after for leadership capability? Well, that's kind of you to say. I wake up some mornings, uh, there's a book out there called The Man in the Mirror, and I think about that. I think I have a knack to maybe see an opportunity where others don't. And I say that both in terms of real property, a business, a concept, or people. I enjoy helping people have their reach exceed their grasp. When I started my business, my first employee was my wife. We worked out of a rented garage on 34th, due south of Coronado. was an old garage. I'm sure the house was built in the 40s or 50s. And the guy just basically put wood paneling over the studs in the garage, added a bathroom, and there we were. My first employee was a young lady named Janie. She was in what they call VOE then at Lubbock High. Walked every day from the Arnett Benson area to Lubbock High. Janie later founded Raider Rojos here. Extraordinary human being. Tough. She grew up in La Mesa under very difficult circumstances. She was offered several jobs with Dun & Bradstreet in New York, New Jersey, and L.A. And to see somebody like Janie and other people, primarily women, primarily Hispanic women, prosper, go on and basically excel, particularly in those days, was a man's world. Dun & Bradstreet in those days was like IBM or something. Everybody wore a black suit, a white shirt, a red tie, and black shoes. And they were nearly all men, and they were nearly all Caucasian. I enjoy helping people. I've failed many a time, I'm sure. I think there are those who might say, maybe I helped them. You've seen various changes throughout the city of Lubbock coming to here in the 1970s. Many opportunities for you to move to other communities. What is it about this city that keeps you here, kept you here? The people and the friends that we made. We've typically been active in everything that we've done. My wife, she's a good time in Mother Teresa. She's active, Bible studies, book clubs. I would say it was a relatively low cost of living. We just liked the place. It was close to her parents who lived in Midland. We moved my mother out here after my father died. But an entrepreneurial place at that time, and still so, many, many small businesses. But you also had a lot of mid-sized businesses. Interestingly enough, most of those mid-sized businesses have now sold. But Lubbock's an entrepreneurial place. Texas Tech and what it brings to Lubbock, I'm fortunate to have, I'll say, supported. We're endowed scholarship donors there. I came from Bonham. My dad was a carpenter. My mom was an assistant librarian. I mean, had a great youth. Eagle Scout, Boy Scouts. I didn't know anything. 
Texas Tech and Lubbock and the opportunities that people gave me. Somebody probably you never heard of, William R. Moss, Bill Moss. He was one of the founders of Crenshaw, Dupree, and Milam. He and another guy got me in Toastmasters, which is one of the best things I've ever done in my life. People will invest in you out here. It's not quite the pace elsewhere. And we'll be right back with Bill to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Bill Miller, the CEO of Breedlove Foods. I want to come back to this idea of entrepreneurship, something that you had mentioned earlier on. I think about not just your business, but this mindset, this entrepreneurial mindset. And I don't think you've turned that off when you work for another company or when you work for a nonprofit. Where does that come from for you? I enjoy assessing situations that other people either don't want to be around or don't like or it hasn't worked or it may seemingly not have any value. My parents were Depression-era parents. They did not want any debt. One thing that my mother instilled in me, I read all the time, and I read primarily biographies. I read of people, of situations they've overcome, and how bloom where you're planted. So when I was at Time DC, I got the idea for this business. And actually, it was an area of law that lawyers didn't want to deal with. They couldn't make any money at it. Very small transactions. I said, well, okay, I can't go to law school. Don't want to borrow the money to go to law school. But I'm becoming somewhat an expert in this. Thanks to Time DC, I had the practical knowledge. In layman's terms, I started practicing law without a license. I would call up General Motors and ask for their traffic department or their finance department. Can I speak to your CFO or your general counsel? And I lay my deal out. Maybe one in 10 would ask me if I was an attorney, and I'd say no. I have an assignment from them. I guess the entrepreneurial thing is, I guess I want to be more than the sum of my parts. There's no better country still than the United States of America. It's like Churchill said, the United States has the worst form of government. The only problem is it's better than all the rest. That's true, even today. But no place, really no country, could somebody like me bump around. But I believe that people can excel. You got to have good timing. So you got to figure out your luck. Is this the time to try this? And is there an opportunity here? When you read about people, they don't quit. And I've made my share of mistakes. In fact, one friend of mine told me I don't know when to quit. I get back up and I like to innovate. And I like to say, have you ever thought about this? I guess one thing that I might be proudest of when I did some work in Austin, when they first put the TEA accountability thing in, it's high-performing school. And my wife was a teacher. My mother was a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. You get the right teacher with the right kind of stuff, they can teach out of a cardboard box. It's pretty hard to do, though. If there is what I would call an optimum area, the chances for a kid's success there are far greater. And there are areas that are challenged, we'll say. The TEA had this recognition of school districts. So I said, well, I had about 200 sales reps. One thing that I put in there was there was a reward component for people who showed the most incremental gain year over year. So if you've got a bell curve and you got your high performers on the, the median left and your other people on the right either trying to come up or go down and you got people on the right, if those people in the poorest area with the toughest challenge can incrementally gain, you need to recognize them. And they put that in there. I don't know if it's still there. I like to fight, I guess. 
but I'm not a fighter per se. For your work in banking and efforts like the Reese Technology Center, you became known as somebody who was a turnaround artist. How does entrepreneurship apply to going into a situation like that? Well, an entrepreneur has got to be somebody who comes up with ideas in spite of just experiencing several of them that fail, because seldom, very seldom, does that first one really work. Sometimes it does. But insofar as going into a place like Reese, having seen how people put together packages to finance businesses, Reese, I think they can, but they haven't sold any property. There wasn't really debt, but you could go to businesses. There are people who thought Reese just gave away the site. You show up, you get a building. Well, there's a little reality to that. I try to view things from reality to a situation, to a problem, to a crisis. And if I can, whether it's in my own life or with others I work with, keep things between reality and a situation and make it manageable before it becomes a problem or a crisis, the odds of success go way up. I think another thing about entrepreneurship is awareness. You can have the best idea in the world and if people don't know about it, good luck. Good luck. You've got to get out there and let people know what you have. And I would say towards Breedlove, with all due respect to everybody, Breedlove never did that. And now we are known from Rome to the Salvation Army to World Vision to Samaritan's Purse to USAID to basically every food outlet in Lubbock, Texas to the major food banks. They know about us. What we've done is take what Breedlove has, create a fabric, you might say, that's a value proposition. First thing I did was come in there is get our finances square and also venues that are out in the public domain where people can look at your credit rating or anything like that. We spiffed up our website. We basically became a value proposition instead of a bag of food. When it comes to all these different roles, scaling a company from just yourself to hundreds of employees, working in corporate environments, working in nonprofit environments, Leadership is a consistent theme in these as well. Where does your leadership style come from? Hundreds of books. I have learned if you're going to be involved with people, particularly people smarter than you, which is what I'm after, you got to be a good listener. It's really hard to learn something if you're talking all the time. Really hard. And one thing that we work on every day at Breed Love, we've got a great team out there, 35 people. Uh, they could all be doing something else. It's a cool place. The value of critical thinking skills and emotional intelligence, not to just lose it when you're just facing a situation that's not even a problem. We've got a varied labor force out there. We invest in how do you build trust, how do you communicate, how do you listen, how do you have critical thinking skills. If people know, not just think, but know you will listen to them, they'll buy in even when you go into a valley. And if you don't think you're going into a valley, you're wrong. At time, I've made many a mistake. I've micromanaged. You name it, I've done it. But I think I have learned from it. You know, I think if a young person out there thinks, well, gosh, America's best days are behind it, mm, I don't think so. It's like I tell my adult kids. Now they say, Dad, boy, your generation has really screwed it up for us. I go, no, somebody's problem is somebody's opportunity. And the last three things I have done, that has been the case. And so... I go in there looking at it as an opportunity. And the first thing I look at is what's reality? Because if you're a narcissist, good luck. And we'll be right back with Bill to continue our conversation on Around Town on 
Welcome back to Around Town. Our guest today is Bill Miller, the CEO of Breedlove Foods. In the Lubbock community, many people have heard of Breedlove, but don't necessarily know what it does or what the organization is about. What does Breedlove do? We feed people. My line when I first came was, and it was true of me, I knew of Breedlove, but I didn't know about it. Breedlove started in collaboration with Suppling's Food Bank, basically dehydrating potatoes, and they provided them for their meals. Potatoes were donated by Frito-Lay. Frito-Lay went away. Breedlove had a, an industrial accident. For years, we had a Suppling's Food Bank board member on our board, but probably, I don't know, 18, 19 years ago, amicably parted ways. So Breedlove was doing one thing, making a lentil-based soup called Harvest Little Pro that was destined for international food relief. Somehow, somebody back there, 20 years ago actually, got Breedlove involved in the International Food Relief Partnership. We have a vested interest in the Farm Bill, the Food for Peace Act, and it's through that appropriation that we have this, what I call foundational funding. We have a grant every year of about 90 containers, We'll make about 4 million pounds of food, give or take. It was all going through partners that were vetted by USAID. USAID is the largest federal agency. They have their fingers in everything. They're great people. So when I came, I said, okay, we have one customer, which in a business, other than lack of working capital, concentration, I one customer, that's the big chill. And we didn't even know anybody. So I went up there, and the first person I met said, well, I didn't even know there was a human at Breedlove. And so we just started showing up. We do not sell retail. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We donate a lot of food. We do cost share, which means we'll partner. Like Samaritan's Purse, we'll pay for half a container. We'll donate the other half. We're working with the El Paso Food Bank right now. We're actually donating food right now to the South Plains Food Bank. And then we sell the primary funding source the U.S. taxpayer, through USAID and the World Food Program. Many, many nations are withdrawing from the relief effort because of everything that's going on in the world. Food banks, their demand has skyrocketed and their donations of food and money have plummeted. So what we try to do is as much an art as a science is we maybe want 10 or 13 customers. We're looking for partners. If you think there are no more good people in the world, you are wrong. We deal with little people. We deal with World Food Program. Uh, We also know our capability. We're not going to be General Mills or Kraft Foods. About three and a half, four years ago, we took a big gamble, which really paid off. We were producing 100, 150,000 meal servings a day. Now we can produce 2 million. Literally, last year, we put food in every outlet. When Habitat for Humanity opened the house, we put food in the pantry. You name it, we're doing it. There's an entity in Abilene called Jeremiah's Hope that has a relationship to the Sunset International Bible Institute, and those people have a sophisticated distribution network. It's pretty amazing to see it at work. Through my contacts at Tech, we were invited to become a part of the Mandela Fellows, which is really a cool deal. There's about four or five groups of about 20 each of young African leaders, and they're professionals or business people and or they know someone. So we get a day with them every year when they come, and we do a taste testing and a tour and all that. Our people seldom if ever get to see a consumer. So we have all 35 of our people come in. 
and we have the Mandela fellows, they all know about USAID. USAID is in every country in Africa. We ask these young people to sample our food, give us suggestions, and then we say, what does hunger mean to you, and what does hunger mean to your country? It's pretty moving. And inevitably, they say, well, how can we replicate breed love in Madagascar? And I said, well, here's the answer. You need to go back and tell the people you know that you would like a democratic form of government that recognizes entrepreneurship, that has low taxation, and that will incent innovation. And I said, it needs to be capitalistic. This building that we were in, two guys, I've been around Lubbock for a while, J.T. Talkington and H.A. Sessions, they donated the building. This was long before I was involved. Eight wealthy people through eight foundations in this area from Sid Richardson in Fort Worth, the Doss Foundation in Seminole, they donated money. That all came about because of free enterprise and capitalism. Somehow, through innovation, people before I came and our current board came, kept it going. So when you ask what Braid Love is about, there's no other entity like it. No for-profit would do it. There's no other entity like it that we can find. Got about 90,000 square foot warehouse. It's just a pretty cool deal when you think that some guy from Rome, Italy, came into Lubbock and drove three miles south of the airport just to come see Breed Love Foods. And we've got people on there who've been there a long time. Tom Sell, who's one of the preeminent ag lobbyists in D.C., has been on our board for a long time. We've got lawyers. We've got three food scientists. We just undertook and funded a study for the use of our product, Dutec, in Nairobi, Kenya, in an area up in northwest Kenya called Turkana. It was so remote they'd never seen a Ziploc bag. We're bringing more food science to it. We know our limitations, too. You never oversell. You only have one reputation. So if you underdeliver, it's a long climb back. We've never missed a ship date. We've never had a product recall. We spend a lot of money on food safety and quality assurance. So what are we about? We're about feeding people, and I dare say it's the most unique enterprise in Lubbock. We only engage with other nonprofits. You describe Breedlove not necessarily as a nonprofit or charity, but as a social enterprise. How do you think about operations to keep versus to partner with? We have many inquiries. We used to not even take them. We didn't have a capability. We have two people, a manager of government relations and marketing who came from IBM. We have a mission engagement specialist, and she came from Southwest Airlines and United. We've had an NGO in Tampa that's made up of retired U.S. military officers from CENTCOM. They can do it. We made a small donation to them, and we made a cost share, and we've done more. With them, they have moved food into Cuba and Venezuela. For example, right now, we're trying to expand our program with the federal government. So what does that mean? It means right now that we have a capacity to produce our core grant and what we call one-offs between 200 and 1,000 more metric tons. Trust me, I don't want to say, all right, we're going to triple our size. And I have people who've approached me, good people, who want to help, and they go, well, hey, exponentially, we can double and triple and all that. Well, yeah, but if you're an entrepreneur, you want to be sure what you're selling or doing, the people can pay you for it. We're in an illiquid market right now, so we have to work very carefully. Again, I would say we know our limits. 
what we try to do is say, okay, where are we on that? What could we do to help? And I'd say this, if you don't know how to adapt, you're going to have trouble as an entrepreneur. We've got a daily saying out there. We were doing it this morning. Assess, communicate, adapt, and move forward. Okay, that adapt part, you got to have some critical thinking and some emotional intelligence because near term or first blush, it may look insurmountable. I was asked, well, right before COVID, to go to a meeting at the UN, which was really cool. So I was in the gift shop there, and there was a banner with a Nelson Mandela saying, it is impossible until it's done. So are we going to feed the world? No. We actually had in our office a few months ago through Tom, Congressman Mann from Kansas. He's one of two really prominent ag people. And he said, I've never been in a place like this. I've never met people like this. They said, what can we do about world hunger? I said, well, I'm not a Democrat, but do you see that poster over there by John F. Kennedy? I'm just one person, but I believe I can make a difference. That's what we try to do. And I said, you know, the problem, it is unfathomable. I've been to D.C. twice in the past three weeks, meeting with USAID. The United States is the relief agency. All these other countries are pulling back or they're donating, particularly into Ukraine, lots of medical, lots of things like that. But USAID, we've got like a $3 billion deficit. They deal in numbers so large, we are just a drop in the bucket. But we are the most requested product in their portfolio within this grant. We don't wear our welcome out. I kind of say we are professionally, politely persistent, and we want to feed more people. And if they say, what's that mean? I go, I'm glad you asked. For those in the Lubbock community that want to engage with Breed Love or be more involved, how can they? Well, then go to www.breedlove.org. We don't have any salespeople. I'm kind of occasionally accused of that, but I'm happy to. There are two other people who can speak. We don't use volunteers. If you got a group, if you uh, contact a young lady named Stacy Saltz, we could probably arrange for a tour. Breedlove.org. Bill, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Brookfeld. The show was produced by Chuck Luck. Our guest today was Bill Miller, the CEO of Breedlove Foods. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town, visit ttupublicmedia.org.